large companies generate large volumes of data. This data gets pumped into a data lake for long-term storage, then pulled into memory for processing and analysis. Once it is in memory, it's often read into a dashboard, which presents a human with a visualization of the data. The end user who is consuming this data is often a data scientist who is looking at the data to find trends and design new machine learning models. Another kind of user is the operational analyst. An operational analyst is creating complex queries across this data to find latencies in the infrastructure, or perhaps slicing and dicing clickstream data that's coming from online advertisements in order to figure out how to tweak those advertising algorithms and spend money more effectively. For an operational analyst, a key use case for a data warehouse is fast, interactive querying. The operational analyst needs to be able to query the data quickly to create a dashboard, make judgments based on that dashboard, and then change the query slightly to look at a slightly different dashboard. Druid is a high-performance database that is used for these kinds of queries. Druid is used for ad hoc queries and operational analytics. Imply Data is a company that builds visualization, monitoring, and security around Druid and the applications that people build on top of Druid. Jad Naus is a vice president of R&D for Imply, and he joins the show to talk about the use case for Druid, the architecture, and the business model of Imply. Imply is hiring, so if you are curious about the technology, you can check out the jobs that are available. If you enjoy the show, you can find all of our past episodes about data infrastructure by going to softwaredaily.com and searching for the technologies or the companies that we discuss in this episode. And if there's a subject that you want to hear covered, feel free to leave a comment on the episode, or you can send us a tweet at software underscore daily. Over the last few months, I've started hearing about Retool. Every business needs internal tools, but if we're being honest, I don't know of many engineers who really enjoy building internal tools. It can be hard to get engineering resources to build back-office applications, and it's definitely hard to get engineers excited about maintaining those back-office applications. Companies like DoorDash and Brex and Amazon use Retool to build custom internal tools faster. The idea is that internal tools mostly look the same. They're made out of tables and dropdowns and buttons and text inputs. Retool gives you a drag-and-drop interface so engineers can build these internal UIs in hours, not days. And they can spend more time building features that customers will see. Retool connects to any database and API. For example, if you want to pull in data from Postgres, you just write a SQL query. You drag a table onto the canvas. If you want to try out Retool, you can go to retool.com slash sedaily. That's R-E-T-O-O-L dot com slash sedaily. And you can even host Retool on-premise if you want to keep it ultra-secure. I've heard a lot of good things about Retool from engineers who I respect, so check it out at retool.com slash sedaily. Jad News, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you. You lead R&D at Imply, which is an analytic system built on the Druid database. The end user of Imply is often an analyst, a business analyst of some kind. 
Take me inside the job of a typical analyst. Well, actually, the typical user of Imply is not an analyst. Generally, analysts usually interact with BI tools or traditionally BI tools like Tableau or like Looker, Power BI. Imply is is not really focused on that set of people yet. Mainly what we are focused on delivering is analytics capabilities for operational level people. Let's say you're an engineer and you need to look at the performance of your cluster and identify which machines seem to be exhibiting a behavior that's problematic. What versions of the software, like what combination of software versions and configurations are causing a particular problem, things like that. Or if you're a marketing, say you're like a growth hacker or you're looking at, uh, you're doing advertising, you're doing A-B testing and you want to understand what segments of the population or of the audience are actually interacting with a particular ad versus others and trying to optimize the performance of those ads. In these kinds of situations, you have very complex data sets. Um, Each kind of event or each click may have, you know, hundreds of fields potentially. And what you're trying to do is looking at some aggregate metrics for a certain number of events over a period of time, and then trying to find what are the common dimensions or the common fields within those events that seem to exhibit similar behaviors and which ones aren't. We have a whole bunch of customers, like one of, the, one of our biggest customers is Twitter, and their main use case is around, is around ads. Tell me some of the typical queries that might be issued to this database. For the most part, these types of queries are less about like dashboarding queries and more like slice and dice analytics. So the example would be, I'll take an engineering one because those are always the easiest for me. Give me the request latency, uh, the, the, the 99th percentile request latency over my entire cluster over the past, let's say, two months. And then drill down to the past two days. Compare the past two days against the, pa- like the two days a month ago. And then zoom into a particular spike, let's say, that you're seeing in the past two days. Break it down by, let's say, AWS regions. And then break it down by Java version. And then compare those versions to each other and figure out which of the Java versions seem to be having problems versus not. So those are kinds of the queries, like very, a very simple workflow for the things that you're trying to do. But imagine like you're trying to do this over you know, hundreds of these dimensions and trying to figure out what group of dimensions or kind of key value pairs are the ones that are problematic. There's been tooling for issuing these kinds of queries for a long time, and you're in a business where you're competing with some of these products, like data warehousing products. What are the traditional responsibilities of a data warehouse? How does that compare to the responsibilities of Druid? Great question. If you look at what time series databases do, they're really focused on providing these fast type real-time, like super real-time analytics where, you know, you put an event and it's supposed to, like, the actual metric should be impacted almost immediately. And you should be able to get alerts on those metrics pretty quickly. And you should be able to store tons of these metrics, like billions of metrics. So that's kind of like one point in the design space for kind of data stores where you want 
super real time, super fast, but the complexity of the queries that you can do and the complexity of the data that you can get is very limited. On the other hand, you have these very capable, very powerful analytical databases, data warehouses, like BigQuery or Snowflake or Redshift, where you can execute these super complex joins on vast amounts of data, but they take a really long time to execute. Druid is kind of the open source OLAP real-time data where, well, I call it a real-time data warehouse that, we're, that we are responsible for. We are the main company behind it. Today, it sits uh, somewhere in between a time series database where the number of dimensions is small and a full data warehouse where you can do these super complex queries. And so we are, Druid is real time and high performance in the sense that you can get results at interactive speeds. So you can actually execute these kinds of slice and dice analytics and queries pretty quickly. A human can sit in front of a UI and then start clicking on things, drag and drop, and execute these um, kind of drill downs and aggregations and, and so on in order to do these kind of root cause analysis explorations. But at the same time, it's powerful enough to get a good subset of the use cases that people use data warehouses for. Mainly, all these use cases are like really operational use cases, like people or like performance-related use cases. Like people are trying to get kind of like the perform the performance of a certain store over time, the performance of a certain item within a store, like these kinds of things. How uh, credit card transactions are working, who's executing them, where what are they, what are people buying for these transactions and so on. So those are kind of the, the, the use cases that we see and like that's kind of the scope. So you've got data warehouses on one side, you've got time series databases on the other. And in terms of technology, Druid is kind of in between these two. And what we're seeing happening is that more and more use cases that people actually care about are moving towards real time. And more and more of the people who want to actually use data to make decisions like day to day are these operational type people, like marketing people, like customer success people or support or engineers. What we are finding, what, what they're finding is that data warehouses can't fulfill this really interactive need. And so they start to find, they start to move and look for something that is more capable of interactive type queries that are fast enough, and they find Druid. And so today, Druid is very much kind of focused on this hot data where you look, you look and find the data that is most used by people. People want to query it all the time. They care about it being fresh. They care about it being available all the time. They move that data and they put it in Druid. At the same time, people are starting to push us towards the data warehouse use cases, the traditional data warehouse use cases, because they see how fast they can execute queries in Druid. And then they say, well, why can't you do this one more query and this one more query and like this additional capability and like add this additional function. And so bit by bit, we're actually getting, we're actually moving more and more into the traditional data warehouse space. The vision that we think we're building out at Imply is this idea of this operational real-time data warehouse. And that's not something that currently exists. Today, you have either time series databases, which are really operational. Well, I mean, you know, Druid has been here for a while, but like when people think about 
high level concepts and the things that that currently exist they have like well okay well, it's either a time series database or it's a data warehouse but there's actually something in the middle which is this operational real time data warehouse which is druid and over time we're adding like in our next release we're going to add the ability to do star schema joins uh, and so that's kind of pushing us bit by bit towards the things that data warehouses traditionally have been doing. Architecturally speaking, as I understand, Snowflake and BigQuery, you can treat them as, and correct me if I'm wrong, like a unified data lake data warehouse. You can dump all your data into them, and they take care of um, figuring out what should be on disk or what should be pulled into memory, and a lot of that is based on when you're querying it. Yep. Druid, you fit it into your data infrastructure in a way where you're doing routine ETL jobs into into Druid, and you also have stream, data streaming into it from another angle, like streaming in from Kafka or something. Can you tell me how, how it fits into your architecture? How are you dumping data into Druid, and when are you dumping data into Druid? So there's two ways of putting data into Druid. Either you do it through streaming ingestion, like you had mentioned with Kafka or Kinesis, so you just pipe the data straight from Kafka into Druid, or you do it through batch ingestion. And what that means is you have your data sitting somewhere. It's usually in like Parquet files or, or ORC files inside a data lake or in S3 buckets or HDFS or whatever. And it used to be that you would get Hadoop, drawn certain Hadoop jobs that are controlled by Druid to read those files and suck them into the Druid format. In sucking those files, actually either through uh, stream ingestion or batch ingestion, what we are doing is we are reading all the data and adding a whole bunch of indexes and optimizing it for the types of queries that we want to do, and then we dump it into what we call deep storage. So deep storage is usually another HDFS or S3 bucket, but that's basically where the main store kind of highly available, reliable store for all this data is. The way Druid works is you have a bunch of historicals. We call them historicals, and these are the really the worker nodes. So they, each of them will be responsible for a subset of the data. This data is stored as segments. We call these each kind of packet of data uh, that's stored as a segment. Each historical is responsible for a number of those segments. They load them, and then they serve them to any query that come in. So it used to be that you, you used to need Hadoop for doing a lot of this ingestion. What we've done in this release that's coming out tomorrow is really focus and double down on building batch ingestion within Hadoop, oh, sorry, within Druid, such that you don't need this external Hadoop system to actually do this batch ingestion. Everybody knows Hadoop is just really hard to run. So does that mean that a user that already has a Hadoop cluster, are they typically copying all their data from HDFS into Druid? They would usually select the data that they care about, and they would copy it into Druid. What we see is people often timing out the data that's in Druid, so it kind of over time kind of ages out. Mm -hmm. And so people would store, in Druid you can actually have tiering of your historical nodes. So you can have 
very expensive historicals that have a ton of memory such that the entire data that they load fits in memory. So you can actually execute queries really fast. And then you can have a lower performance node, which maybe serves data from SSD files, sorry, from SSDs. And that could be for things that are maybe like a month or three months old or something like that. And then something that has magnetic disks, and that would be for things that are maybe a year old. And then generally people don't, like in these operational use cases, people rarely care about data for multiple years or things like that. So they they usually wouldn't load that that amount of data into Druid, especially given like, because usually the queries that people want to do on Druid, they want them to execute super fast. And so they have to balance the resources and figure out what data has to be in memory versus not in memory and things like that. So just to clarify the terminology, the historicals are the data that you're actually going to be querying in the operational use case whereas you you have might have the raw data after it's ingested written to deep storage and the deep storage is not typically queried right so let me redescribe this in a way that's a little bit more organized so i kind of was trying to selectively describe the, the the architecture so the way druid works is you usually have some raw data coming in from somewhere either through kafka that you want to ingest straight into druid or you have a bunch of data that's sitting somewhere in Parquet files or ORC files somewhere in HDFS or in S3 or like your data lake. Those files that are sitting in your data lake actually could be every once in a while updated. So some of our customers, for example, like update these files like once a day. And so they want to re-ingest those files into Druid such that Druid has kind of the daily fresh version for execs to look at dashboards and things like that. So the way Druid works is in order to take these, in order to actually create the data within it, it has to suck that data through something that we call ingestion. If you're sucking it in from Kafka, then it's stream ingest. If you're taking it from files or something where like you have to actually launch a task every once in a while to do it, so it's not a real-time task, it would be batch ingestion. So the way Druid operates is that it has this thing that it calls a segment. A segment is a container of the data. It's kind of like a file or something like that. It, it's an indexed data structure that contains the data as well as indices to make it much faster to query that particular segment. A segment uh, usually is assigned to a certain time interval. Data could be partitioned into different segments over time, things like that. And so as this data gets ingested either through Kaf from Kafka or batch ingest, segments are created. The segments go into something we call deep storage. That's where those segments are stored reliably and highly available and they're to a certain extent permanent. Over time, as people can set retention, stra uh, retention strategies for data, and so over time, like segments can time out. Now, in order to, sort, to serve those segments, there are components or processes, servers, that we call historicals. You can have a large number of historicals. The design of Druid is such that the historicals can be stateless. So a lot of people, we see them run these historicals within Docker or on Kubernetes or something like that so that they can quickly scale out and down, up and down as needed. The way historicals work is they come up, somebody, I'm not going to describe the whole control system, but somebody tells them this is the time range that you're responsible for and the data that you're responsible for, and they go and find the right segments from deep storage, and then they load them to serve queries. 
as queries come in, they go through a, a node that we call the broker, a type of node that's called the broker. That broker parses the query, figures out what historicals are responsible for what data sets, and then goes and queries all those historicals and collects the data back and merges that data and returns it to the user. The historicals, in order to execute the query, they load the data they load the data that they acquired from the deep storage into memory, and then they execute those queries potentially segment by segment and, and then return the result for the segments that they actually care about. So that's kind of how the whole system fits together, if that makes sense. Looking for a job is painful. And if you are in software and you have the skill set needed to get a job in technology, it can sometimes seem very strange that it takes so long to find a job that's a good fit for you. Vettery is an online hiring marketplace that connects highly qualified workers with top companies. Vettery keeps the quality of workers and companies on the platform high because Vettery vets both workers and companies. Access is exclusive, and you can apply to find a job through Vettery by going to vettery.com slash sedaily. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash sedaily. Once you're accepted to Vettery, you have access to a modern hiring process. You can set preferences for location, experience level, salary requirements, and other parameters so that you only get job opportunities that appeal to you. No more of those recruiters sending you blind messages that say they are looking for a Java rock star with 35 years of experience who's willing to relocate to Antarctica. We all know that there is a better way to find a job. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. Vettery is changing the way people get hired and the way that people hire. So check out vettery.com slash sedaily and get a $300 sign-up bonus if you accept a job through Vettery. That's V-E-T-T-E-R-Y dot com slash sedaily. Thank you to Vettery for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Could you frame it comparatively to Snowflake and BigQuery or, or perhaps Redshift again? Why is it able to outperform those data warehouses? That's a question I'm not going to be fully able to answer. I, that's a question I've wanted to look into, but I'll give you a hint of why. I'll give you a little bit of a flavor for how I understand it. Sure. I understand it. So the larger cloud data warehouses need to be have, have two um, restrictions that we don't. The first one is they have to store data pretty much indefinitely. They have to be designed in such a way that... This data lake, data warehouse combination thing. Maybe I should talk a little bit about what's a data warehouse and what's a data lake. Would that be a good sure. description? So a data lake is usually a place where you just dump files. A lot of people have, for a long time, like people would just bring up something like HDFS, and then they'd start dumping files into it. They don't know whether they're going to use those files or not. Sure. And then they bring it. Like, it's they, cheap. They, it's on disk. Exactly. Throw it all there. And then they hope that like something like at some point in time, somebody's going to create some system that makes it easy for them to get the answers that they want out of those files. Right. There's been things like 
Hadoop that doesn't seem to work that well. And then people started using Hive, which turns out to be pretty slow. And then people started using things like Presto, which is doing a much better job, but still kind of slow. And then they started building things like, like using things like Spark and so on. Anyway, so those are kind of like the ways to extract data from. It's very... It's not nice. Right. Um, yeah, because for those ad hoc queries, you're ultimately reading files, files. from disk, and it's going to be expensive. And in contrast to data warehouse, you actually can pull it into memory and then do ad hoc queries, and it's much faster. Exactly. So for a data warehouse, you're actually dumping the data, and the data warehouse, basically, you, you give it data through their ingestion process, and the data warehouse looks at the data, and it actually indexes as you decide how it should index this data and then dumps it into the into uh, an optimized storage format for the way it queries for the way it executes queries whereas that doesn't happen in data lakes so those are kind of like the differences between a data lake and a data warehouse to me a data lake is pretty much like a file store somewhere it's just it just expands it doesn't like it's basically an unlimited pool of an unlimited storage space for for files so what was your question well, I was just wondering about the the performance. How Druid is able to outperform the databases thanks to architecture, but we can save that for another podcast. Like if that's, but we just did a show about Presto, so I'm glad you have kind of put this in a nice contrast. It sounds like Presto, performance wise, sits somewhere in between the performance of Hive and the performance of a data warehouse or the performance of Druid. Is that, have you looked into Presto significantly? Yes. So Presto's performance sits somewhere between Hive and the traditional data warehouse. Right. Operational data warehouse like Druid sits actually even beyond right. the regular data warehouse. Presto is, is, designed to be such, is designed to be mainly like a federated... Yeah. Uh, SQL engine, right? And it's limited by the performance of the storage locations and like the storage formats yeah. and, and things like that. Data warehouses don't have the same problem and specifically Druid doesn't. Got it. Talking at a higher level, when you're talking to customers, for example, so like I was looking at Airbnb's use case, how do they adopt Druid? Like, do they ha- is there like a particular use case they find that their data warehouse is not fast enough for? What pushes them to adopt Druid? Airbnb specifically, the use case that they use it for is performance monitoring. So, if you remember what I had, what I said about time series databases, they're nice and that they're fast, but it's actually not that great to try to debug or kind of do analytical queries on a time series database. It's really hard to figure out things like clustering and, and so on when you have very dimension, like highly dimensional data. And what you need is like more OLAP type queries uh, and data cubes. And time series databases don't have that. And so they, they were thinking about, well, what actually allows us to have, uh, allows us to do pretty complex aggregation and slice and dice queries on highly dimensional data, but still be real time. And that's how they found Druid. And the reason they like it is because you can connect it to Kafka, and whenever, as soon as a Kafka event is uh, an event is available through Kafka, it can be ingested and available for querying in less than a second. That is the type of performance they're they're looking for, because when there's a problem in their clusters, they want to be able to immediately identify that issue and alert on it, and then very quickly go and troubleshoot and slice and dice the data to figure out 
what, let's say, machines are causing that problem? So the events get pulled off of Kafka, they get indexed in Druid really rapidly, and then if there's an issue, the so there's like alerting systems that are hooked up to Druid. So the alerting systems can do anomaly detection or whatever. Yes, it depends on how, I don't exactly know how they do alerting and, and anomaly detection, so I can't speak to that. Mm. Okay. I think they might be actually doing it. I'll, I'm not going to speak to that. Yeah, fair enough. Now, from a product standpoint, Imply built its product, Imply, the, the which was founded by the guy who created Druid, Fangin. The product was created by integrating Druid with full dashboarding and visualization. Why take that product route? Why not just sell the database and let other people build BI tools and dashboards on top of it? Great question. So if you actually think about a lot of the operational use cases and the types of interactions people want with data, you'll find that most BI tools are pretty limited. Specifically, the type of interaction that you want is this kind of data cube slice and dice interaction where you can like drag and drop and be able to break out uh, dimensions from aggregates and, and so on. There is no... BI tool that does this out of the box, generically across kind of data in general. You'll find that there are kind of vertical specific tools that do these kinds of things. So for example, I was at AppDynamics, we built something to a certain extent similar to that, that's now called Business IQ, and that was based on Elasticsearch. And you see it in other systems like Amplitude Analytics has a similar thing, but that's they have their own internal database. But there's no kind of system that just does this for everybody. And so that's why the team ended up getting Pivot out of MetaMarkets, where, the, where Druid was initially created, in addition to Druid itself. And the reason that they really took out Pivot and wanted to make it available for other people as well is because they wanted to showcase the type of things that you could do with Druid. And today, we don't yet have this... The BI tools haven't yet woken up to the need of, of these operational people to kind of do these slice and dice analytics. And so in order to actually provide people with a UI that can do that on top of, a, on top of Druid and kind of showcase its capabilities and play to its strengths, we have to build a UI. That's Pivot. So what about this whole Tableau, Looker, Periscope data, whatever space? Like I thought that's those companies did the BI next generation stuff. So they mostly focused on creating more dashboards as opposed to interactive exploration of data. And so you can have somebody going like, okay, well, I need to understand like how a particular thing happens. And then they'd go into the dashboard building tool or they'd go into the widget building tool and they'd execute a few queries and, they, and, then, and then they dashboard that they kind of create a chart from that data, as opposed to doing this, I guess, slice and dice capability, which is like create an aggregate, like maybe you start off with a query, and maybe you just start off with show me the aggregate, like the total latency, and then break that down by regions, break that down by Java versions, drill down into this piece, compare that to other, to other pieces. Like this kind of very iterative, very interactive workflow is not one that these BI tools are really focused on at the moment. They're really focused on is like dashboarding, like 
showing you something over time, something that you would put on a screen, something that you would look at to see if things are working normally, not this kind of interactive mode of you know working with data. When you're setting up like a series of dashboards in or a series of analyses imply in or pivot is it pivot open source no pivot is the ui okay um, pivot is just the ui piece of of imply got it okay it's the ui product that sits on top of druid does that necessitate druid serving multiple queries in parallel that's right is that hard to engineer yes for the most part what we see people using druid for are these highly concurrent but potentially low volume use cases Something where, you know, you have potentially hundreds of people looking at the same, like trying to slice and dice and understand for the same data set, what's actually happening, what's not, like what, what, is, what, are, what are our users doing here versus there and so on. And that's really what Druid is best at because it can farm out a lot of the queries and be very efficient in terms of who's executing what query. Data warehouses don't operate in the same kind of hierarchical way, like strictly hierarchical way that Druid operates in. So they suffer from a lot of kind of shuffling of data around potentially in order to execute queries or different people trying to access certain buffer pools within certain nodes that might end up conflicting. And that's mainly like a lot of the, a lot of the reasons why the performance of Druid ends up being better for these use cases. How much flexibility do you give over to the database operator or the engineer, the operational analytics person, whoever is operating their imply set of dashboards? How much control do you give them over the underlying infrastructure? Do you want to give them control over spinning up new nodes or moving stuff to disk or archiving things? Or or do you want to take care of all the infrastructure under the hood? With Druid being an open source project, we found that people always want to have more and more controls. We have huge clusters that are running Druid. And when you have something like multi-thousand, like thousands of nodes that are running, uh, that are running Druid, small optimizations and small changes can lead to significant cost savings or performance improvements. And so for the longest time, we've really focused on making Druid super powerful and easy to operate at scale. But the downside of this has always been that it's a lot harder to start with. It's a lot harder to deploy it in small situations. It's a lot harder to kind of fully understand all the knobs and all the things that you can tweak and how to get the best performance for the things that you're trying to do depending on your scale. And so what we are doing at Imply over time is reducing that that difficulty. Some of it is by building additional operationalization features. So one thing that we have at Imply is something called uh, Clarity. That's our performance monitoring tool for Druid. Mm. And so if you have Clarity, you can actually understand how queries are executing, why they're fast, why they're not fast, how to optimize segment sizes, things like that, in order to get the best performance out of your out of your cluster. We also have a cloud version that is already optimized for whatever you need to do. So you don't end up having to deal with the difficulties of actually using Druid by yourself. What is the experience you give people with Clarity? So like if I have a a query that's doing poorly, do you tell me how to re- 
write the syntax of the query differently, or you just tell me it's like using too much memory, or what exactly are you doing there? So we can tell you what parts are taking how much time where. We haven't yet gotten to the point where we can actually suggest changes. Mm. I'm not actually sure how much how much of a gap we have before we can actually do that. But with the most recent version of Imply, so the one that we are about to release, we have actually moved Clarity to be a part of Pivot itself. And so now you have all the same capabilities that you have with Pivot on top of Clarity. So that includes things like alerting in real time, things like scheduled reporting, much more capable slice and dice abilities than, than, what, we had to, than what we had before. I'd like to know more about what your role entails, because I understand this is an extremely technical product, but it's also one where you really need to understand this particular user type. And it, I think this is a kind of a new class of user. And so my understanding is you sit somewhere in between understanding what the user needs and interpreting that to technical program managers, program managers, and engineers, as well as perhaps filtering the things between the engineers and the customers and thinking up new features or new product ideas. Can you, can you just take me inside how you operate that role? Sure. So my title is VP of R&D, but it's, for most startups, that's kind of an invented role or invented title. I'm actually head of product and engineering at Imply. I juggle two things. First, I'm working on building a scalable engineering operation with processes that lead to consistent consistent quality across the products that we build, as well as make sure that the features that we build are delivered on time. So that's one half of my job. The other half is head of product, which means I'm responsible for making sure that we have we are building the right things in, in summary. What that means is talking to a lot of customers, understanding their needs, looking at the market, understanding how potential competition is looking, what does the data space look like, where do we fit in that space strategically, how do we message the things that we're building, how do we explain it to people, how do we break the high-level strategy that we're doing into smaller items that we can then deliver, give engineering to go and build. So that's the, that's the product management piece of, of what I do. At this point, our company is, is a little bit small, so we don't yet have program managers. The way program managers fit here is when you have a much larger engineering organization, you end up with these kind of cross-functional initiatives where you have like, let's say, oh, let's redo how we build testing or how we do CI or how we do or how we execute on this particular feature or something like that or let's change this architecture let's let's start supporting java 11 things like that so they take these initiatives and kind of follow them through and implement a plan to execute them across engineering product customer success and so on we're not yet there maybe someday someday You probably do not enjoy searching for a job. Engineers don't like sacrificing their time to do phone screens, and we don't like doing whiteboard problems and working on tedious take-home projects. 
Everyone knows the software hiring process is not perfect, but what's the alternative? TripleByte is the alternative. TripleByte is a platform for finding a great software job faster. TripleByte works with 400-plus tech companies, including Dropbox, Adobe, Coursera, and Cruise Automation. TripleByte improves the hiring process by saving you time and fast-tracking you to final interviews. At triplebyte.com slash SEDaily, you can start your process by taking a quiz, and after the quiz, you get interviewed by Triplebyte if you pass that quiz. And if you pass that interview, you make it straight to multiple on-site interviews. And if you take a job, you get an additional $1,000 signing bonus from Triplebyte because you use the link triplebyte.com slash SEDaily. That $1,000 is nice, but you might be making much more since those multiple on-site interviews would put you in a great position to potentially get multiple offers, and then you could figure out what your salary actually should be. TripleByte does not look at candidates' backgrounds, like resumes and where they've worked and where they went to school. TripleByte only cares about whether someone can code. So I'm a huge fan of that aspect of their model. This means that they work with lots of people from non-traditional and unusual backgrounds. To get started, just go to triplebyte.com slash SEDaily and take a quiz to get started. There's very little risk, and you might find yourself in a great position getting multiple on-site interviews from just one quiz and a Triplebyte interview. Go to triplebyte.com slash SEDaily to try it out. Thank you to Triplebyte. When you're trying to find where exactly Druid fits in the market and where it does not fit, what are the places where you have trouble winning over the customer base? Like maybe you go and talk to them and you're like, look, you could totally use Druid. You could totally use Imply. And they're just saying, eh, actually, our data warehouses are good enough. We don't really need the additional low latency. It's not really going to help us. No, thank you. Come back next year. And you know they could use it. You know they would get value. What are the, the places where you feel like the messaging or the product? And, and one of the reasons I'm asking this is because I know there's a lot of people who actually, well, there's number, at least a number of people who listen to this show and they work at like Confluent or Databricks or like they're building a data infrastructure company. And there's so much change in the data infrastructure world right now that like people building products in the data infrastructure space, they really have to hone hone their messaging because mm-hmm. otherwise you just you just hit a wall because, yeah. you know, the, you're, you're selling to people that, that might have just fatigue. Yeah. So. So. Let me describe a little bit of the journey that we're on at this point from the product side. Druid was initially created to serve a particular problem, to solve a particular problem in ads. The problem it was solving is this need for slice and dice analytics. It's necessary for doing things like understanding what segment of the population really likes pink shoes versus which one likes, you know, red shoes and which one cares about the brand versus not, which one responds to an image with two people versus five people in an ad, like things like that. And so it was created with that in mind to begin with. 
And over time, what has happened is we've discovered more and more of these use cases, these kind of operational use cases in different functions in the company, like engineering, the example of Airbnb is one, like marketing, like customer support, things like that. Because there wasn't this operational level BI, this operational BI thing, this UI that you could just plug into any kind of database and it'll give you this interactive experience, mainly because the data warehouses couldn't do this interactive experience. They were too slow for doing it. But it's kind of like a fish and egg problem. Oh, sorry, fish and egg. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind I mean, of that like... works. That works. That works. Yeah, which kind hey, of the fish who, are the who, egg? who gives all the reproductive rights to the chickens? <laughs> fish and eggs, gate is a fine analogy. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> now you know that I'm not from this country. <laughs> <laughs> It's not even a translation from <laughs> from anything I know about. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> so it's kind of a chicken and egg problem. Like you needed a data warehouse that can do these interactive type queries really fast in order for a UI that can answer, the, like, that can be interactive to even be possible. And so Druid was created and then they created a UI on top of it and that was Pivot. And then, you know, they open sourced these things and more and more people have found that they wanted to provide either their internal customers or their external customers with this analytical experience for whatever things they do. What that meant was they would take Druid and then they would store all the data that they want on it and then they would build their own UIs on top of it. And so that's been kind of the our biggest segment of customers so far, ones who have built their own applications either to serve internal customers or external customers. What we're seeing happen is that these customers are so happy with kind of the latency that they're seeing from requests going into Druid for their applications that they say things like, well, why don't you hook up to our BI systems as well? Mm. And so now we are kind of in this zone in the middle that hasn't existed before where you have these BI uh, applications, these like things like Tableau and Looker and so on, that traditionally used to connect to things like Hive or Presto or Snowflake or Teradata or whatever, now want to hook into Druid. This wasn't the original intention, but this is kind of what is happening. What that means is that more and more Druid is actually starting to be looked at as a data warehouse. It's not a full data warehouse. It can't do all the types of queries that a regular data warehouse does. It's an operational data warehouse because it stores kind of operational type data. It, you don't want to put all the data in, in Druid at this point. And the types of queries that it does aren't as powerful as the types of queries that a full data warehouse would be able to do. But because they are connected to connecting it to BI tools, they're, they're looking at it as a data warehouse. Mm. And so that's kind of what's, what's happening. And now people are starting to look at us as a data warehouse. And that is now the thing that we need to build next. And so the vision for us going in the future is that we will be a data warehouse that you would connect to uh, your BI tools. And hopefully what will happen over time is that these BI vendors will realize that they need to provide these kinds of interactive analytical query, like interactive kind of analytical capabilities for users so that they could do slice and dice analytics the same way as Pivot does. We don't really want to, I mean, Pivot is great. We want to always use it as a way to showcase the best things that Druid can do. But our dream is like for everybody in the world to be able like 
to just have BI tools and UIs that can actually do this and for us to just sell imply to them and, and have them connect their BI tools to us. Yeah, because I always looked at Imply and I was like, this sounds hard. Like, you're already building a database. Now you're building a UI. That's like a lot of stuff to do. Yeah. It's solving the chicken and egg problem. Fair enough. A creative way. Fish and egg problem. Yeah. So there just would not have been a way to go to market immediately as a database company or a data warehouse company. Exactly. Because like, you know, we can't do all the queries. Yes, we're faster, but like we don't, like in the beginning, we didn't even have JSON. Uh, Sorry, we didn't even have SQL. Right, it was a JSON kind of type query that you have to write in order for Druid to execute. We recently added SQL, and now, you know, we're adding joins in the next release and things like that. And so, like, we're moving more and more towards standard data warehouse stuff. So, when Fangin first built the database, was he just querying it and like reading the queries, and then like sort of just like writing reports? Like, there was just no UI layer to it originally. Because if you couldn't plug it into any BI tool, doesn't like that seems like a very lackluster well, experience. They built an application called Pivot at MetaMarkets as well. So Pivot actually okay, also so they built was them part, concurrently. Yes, yes, they built them both together, and that's what they sold to their customers. Got it. The journey from operational analytics database to data warehouse. What's hard about that? The journey from operational database? So I'm saying right now you're trying to expand from this set of use cases that you have to a broader set of use cases. Basically, you're trying to be a full-fledged data warehouse. Well, full-fledged is too strong of a word. I don't think we'll ever be able to do all the things that Mm. BigQuery or, or, or Snowflake does, and I don't think we want to. I think we want to get to a point where... We're doing a pretty good number and like people use us as a as kind of the hot tier, if you will, like the the hot layer for doing the the more important like not more important, like the the, the more latency sensitive queries or for doing the interactive type queries. I see. Okay. So you're you really want to carve out a niche in that infrastructure monitor example or the ad tracking example where you want to know these things on a very rapid basis or you can imagine things like in financial services and you know you need stock trading applications where you really really need low latency as opposed to data warehousing where data warehousing there's typically like a period of time where the data is not available in the data warehouse right because you kind of basically have these micro batches typically going into the data warehouse right Yes, not necessarily micro. I mean, like, be daily. It could be monthly. It could be weekly. Mm. It's not. Actually, here's an interesting use case. One of our customers is a big consulting shop, and they are using Druid for insurance analytics. In insurance analytics, the data, like, accurate data will only exist for kind of, like, six months ago to a year ago. And so when they're looking at these kinds of, data, they only want to look at data that's about a year ago. And so they only load that. So they don't actually care about it being real-time in the sense that the data is fresh. What they do care about is the speed of the interactive queries that they execute. Mm. And so that's a thing that you would say, well, these guys are so big, like, why don't they use something like Snowflake or BigQuery or whatever? Because those systems can't provide that same level of performance for those queries that they need. Hmm. I see. So this is so the just the way that these data data warehouses are architected 
does not there's a there's a worse query performance yes it doesn't lend itself well to interactive kind of ad hoc analytics the one other piece of thing that i'll add is that a lot of these companies can are also using a data warehouse so they always will like for so far they've had other queries like they, that they can't execute in Druid, like things like for reporting that requires nested joins and and things like that, that you know Druid probably will never will never be able to do. But hopefully over time, Druid will be able to take SQL and kind of understand whether this is something SQL like Druid can execute or whether it's something that it can delegate to a data warehouse to kind of make this whole experience seamless for users, especially on the BI side. Tell me something that has surprised you about developing a product in the modern data infrastructure environment. Well, I've never really developed a product in the non-modern data infrastructure environment. <laughs> so, so it's really hard for me to kind of compare it. What has been surprising to me in this role in particular is just like how much stuff is still not yet thought about. It's really enlightening to me that, or really interesting or surprising to me that like this idea of an operational data warehouse still doesn't really exist per se, or that the fact that engineers or marketing people or salespeople or like customer success people or whatever, like the way that they interact with, with data through the UI is not really the BI method. Like it's not traditionally how BI tools work. And it's surprising to me that like BI companies haven't yet caught up to that, but maybe they are. I mean, maybe that, that is happening. I hope it is happening because that's really what I think will will be a major driving factor in, in Druid adoption. Last question. Any predictions for the next five years of data infrastructure? Yes. <laughs> so one thing that I've been thinking about a lot is this idea of the reference kind of BI, open source BI architecture. And I think at this point, we kind of are starting to put together all the pieces. And there are kind of open source driven companies that are doing these kinds of things now. So the idea would be that you would have, you would combine something like Presto for kind of data warehouse -y complex queries with something like Druid for the high-performance, hot tiering of data, and something like Superset or Pivot on top in order to actually give you kind of an end-to-end -end data warehousing, like open-source data warehouse experience. That's a really interesting kind of framework to think about putting together for a company that's still too small to really want to go and buy large data warehouses or something like that, and they want to just do things manually and put them together. Hopefully, Imply over time is going to make these kinds of architectures much easier to adopt. Great answer. Thanks for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me. Apache Cassandra is an open-source distributed database that was first created to meet the scalability and availability needs of Facebook, Amazon, and Google. In previous episodes of Software Engineering Daily, we have covered Cassandra's architecture and its benefits, and we're happy to have Datastax, the largest contributor to the Cassandra project since day one, as a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. Datastax provides Datastax Enterprise, a powerful distribution of Cassandra, 
created by the team that has contributed the most to Cassandra. Datastax Enterprise enables teams to develop faster, scale further, achieve operational simplicity, ensure enterprise security, and run mixed workloads that work with the latest graph, search, and analytics technology, all running across hybrid and multi-cloud infrastructure. More than 400 companies, including Cisco, Capital One, and eBay, run Datastax to modernize their database infrastructure, improve scalability and security, and deliver on projects such as customer analytics, IoT, and e-commerce. To learn more about Apache Cassandra and Datastax Enterprise, go to datastax.com slash sedaily. That's Datastax with an X, D-A-T-A-S-T-A-X, at datastax.com slash sedaily. Thank you to Datastax for being a sponsor of Software Engineering Daily. It's a great honor to have Datastax as a sponsor, and you can go to datastax.com slash sedaily to learn more. 